cool, cool. Well, welcome up in Overflow. We miss you in here. <laughs> we got ushers passing out Bibles and the note sheets, pencils. So if you need um, a Bible, raise your hand, and they'll make sure that you've got the Word there with you so you can study along with us. As we are in Galatians chapter 5, you can go ahead and turn there. And that's where we're going to be studying today as we're wrapping up chapter 5 of this wonderful letter that we have been in. As they're getting those things to you, uh, uh, just, just understand, if you've got your children here with you, we are happy to have them in here. We are grateful. And as a church, together, we love uh, people of all ages to hear the gospel of Jesus. And even if they're little and it doesn't seem like they might be able to process all of it, being exposed to people putting their focus and attention on God's Word is, is a blessing to them. It's a benefit to them. So we're happy to exhibit a little bit extra patience and, um, and grace. It's, that's fine. Please don't feel self-conscious. We are happy that they are with us and enjoying the Word together today. I think I just told you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. But before we go to chapter 5, I actually want us to turn to Luke chapter 6. So if you've got your Bibles and you want to open up to Luke chapter 6. Jesus was in the midst of an extended sermon in chapter 6 of Luke. Um, sometimes that sermon is referred to as a sermon on the plain. It has many similarities to the Sermon on the Mount, but was in a different geographical context and has slightly different content. And so when we get down to verse 43 of Luke chapter 6, Jesus is wrapping up a section where he's warning his disciples to judge themselves rather than being so quick to cast judgment on others. He's urging his followers to examine their own hearts, their own minds, and to honestly consider their own behavior before they criticize the behavior of the people around them. Jesus launches into an important metaphor in support of that idea, and it, it kind of has some relevance to what we're going to look at in chapter 5 of Galatians today. So let's look at that in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. God's Word says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. We observe a couple of principles here as Jesus is teaching his people. There, We see that true godliness is not just about what one says. It's about what one does. It's about the fruit that life Produces. Jesus evokes this agricultural metaphor to remind the disciples that the evidence of holy action should present itself in the life of a believer. And when it does, it is more important than the empty words that some people such as the scribes and the Pharisees were so happy to talk about but not happy to follow. They look beyond a person's words then. We should look beyond a person's words to see the actions that they portray. What do they say but does what they do match what they say? True godliness is not just about what one does, it is also about what one is. Over the long haul, a person's actions will tell the truth about what is in their heart, what is going on within their soul. So we should also look beyond a person's actions and their words to see what truly motivates them, what they truly love. Because we are going to do the thing that we love the most. We are going to follow the passion that is greatest in our hearts. Jesus went to the cross to give his life as an essential sacrifice. 
One that would make it possible for the stony hearts of men like, like us to be fundamentally changed, to be softened to the things of God. And so we fast forward 30 years and the Apostle Paul here in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul whose own heart was radically changed forever, who was at one time the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ. And then through his miraculous transformation as Jesus revealed himself to Paul and, and turned his heart to the gospel, became the greatest missionary that the early church knew. Paul is now pointing to that same illustration that Jesus was teaching from on the Sermon on the Plain. And he's going to expand on that metaphor, bringing specific examples of the kinds of fruit that a good tree should really bear. Understand that the fruit of the Spirit is it's not just a list of good behaviors that we should shoot for. It's a field guide for identifying a heart that is filled with the Holy Spirit. As we apply what we observe in God's Word today, we want to be certain that we're saying the right things about discipleship. But we also want to ask ourselves, am I actually bearing this fruit that Paul says is indicative of a life and a heart that has surrendered to Jesus? But beyond that, we also want to ask, if these fruits are present in my life, where are they coming from? Are they coming from a heart that truly loves the Lord, that has a sincere desire to be him on, be, see Him honored and lifted up? Do they flow from a heart that is stocked full of the good treasures of love for Jesus, respect for the Father, and dependence upon the Holy Spirit? Because that foundation of affection for, our, uh, for and faith in Jesus Christ is where true change begins in the heart of man. So seek the Spirit, desire the things of the Lord, and you will see these fruit begin to bloom in your life. So by way of reminder, we're going to read again what we've been studying for the past four weeks. This is Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through to the end of the chapter. The Apostle Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Nine fruits of the Spirit are listed here by Paul. And remember that this list is not exhaustive. That's not every fruit that can be borne by the Spirit. It is rather representative. It is a good cross-section of the kinds of fruit that will come out of a life that is dedicated to loving the Lord God. We've looked closely at all but two on this list of fruits. These final two fruits will be the focus of our efforts this morning. Fruit number eight is the fruit of gentleness. In the Greek we see prautes, prautes. First, take note of the fact that to be gentle is not to be weak. It is not to be passive. Our Western understanding of that term needs to shift a little bit because we often see gentleness as a deficit in our society when in reality the scripture lifts it up as a great virtue. Uh, most of you know I've got a, you know, like half a dozen sons or something, a whole bunch of boys running around my house and uh, they all like to play with me. I don't, know, I don't know why, I'm not that fun of a guy, but uh, I know that might change one day when they become teenagers and they have cars to drive and friends to hang out with, but right now they like me and I'm excited about that. 
Um, they really enjoy when I stop what I'm doing and I get down to their level and I, I play with them. I interact with them. I play their games. I talk their language. I, I joke with them in ways that they can understand and that will make them laugh. If you're a dad, don't miss the opportunities to stop and play with your kids. So much important learning goes on in the lives of our kids when we stop and we sit with them and we spend time with them. If nothing else, you show your children by your actions what a high priority they are in your life. That you see them as a very, very noble calling that God has given to them, to you as a stewardship, that you are going to take good care of them and help them and rejoice in them. So make sure, dads and moms, spend time with your kids, playing with them. Now my boys, they, they love fun, they love games. It's all great. But what they really love to do is fight with dad. That's what they love. They love to wrestle around. They jump on my back. They, they, they grab me. They pull. They push. They punch. I chase them around the house. They team up against me and try to take me down like, like a pack, like a hunting pack. They smash me with pillows. They plot. They scheme. They hide and jump out of places at me. They love to fight with their dad. Not when I mean fight, I mean in a very playful and loving way. My smallest boys, Justice and Benjamin, are really the ones who can't get enough of that. When I'm fighting with Ben, he is not holding back. <laughs> this kid is giving every ounce of what he's got. He's doing everything in his power to take Dad out. Uh, he winds up and swings for the fences. He doesn't just give me a little tap, you know, not a little tap here. He's trying to blast me. If I'm laying on the ground, he'll run up and just jump in the air and land with both knees right on me. <laughs> Holds nothing back. But, here's the upside to that, he's four. Just turned four, all right? So even his best shot isn't too much of a threat to me, so long as I'm defending a couple of key vulnerable areas, okay? Four years old means that he is relatively weak you know, compared to people. So four-year-olds don't have to be gentle, do they? They don't have to be gentle because they don't have a lot of power. A person who needs to be gentle is a person with some power. Daddy is the one who needs to be gentle, right? The big challenge for me is roughhousing with my little boys without accidentally hurting them, without being too rough or squeezing too tightly or chasing them too much to the point where they, they, can't, they can't handle it. Considering that I have so much more power than they do, I've got to be considerate of their limits. I outweigh them by 140 pounds. And that's close to being honest. <laughs> I am exponentially more threatening to them than they are to me. So if I'm going to roughhouse with my boys, I have to be very careful to control my power so that I don't do them any harm. I have to be gentle with them. Do you see how that shows you that gentleness is not weakness? Gentleness is knowing your power and your strength and being able to be careful about it. It's being considerate to others so that your power, whatever dominion you have, whatever strength or ability you have, does not injure another person unnecessarily. A gentle person is not a weak person. He is a powerful person who will be careful not to let his strength damage another, if at all possible. I spell weak wrong? <laughs> Usually you give me the dignity of waiting till after the sermon 
to tell me how bad a speller I am. Here we are, right on the one video we've got today. Tell me how terrible I am at my notes. Woo! I was an English major. Not a spelling major, Stephen Kessner. So. Right. Gentleness cannot be into, you're, you're lucky you have a gentle pastor, don't you? <laughs> you're a gentle pastor who loved you very much. Gentleness cannot be interpreted as a lack of action either, okay? Rather, it needs to be understood as a careful application of action. A gentle person is not a passive person, but rather takes action in a very metered and measured way. I am not doing nothing as a gentle person. I am doing something, but the something that I am doing is going to be done with careful concern for everybody else who's involved. That is gentleness. Next week's sermon will start us in on chapter 6, and I don't want to spoil the whole thing, but it begins like this. If anyone is caught in a trespass, if any one of you is caught in sin, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Do you know how hard it is to restore a brother? To confront a sin? You know how hard that is? How challenging it is? It takes great courage. It takes strength. But we are called as God's people to do that difficult, challenging work with a gentleness that shows love and truth at the same time. There are many critical tasks that a follower of Jesus should apply themselves to, and gentleness should be a component of all of them. Even in a situation where a brother or sister in Christ is in need of confrontation, confrontation should be done in a controlled manner. Not to destroy, but to restore. Not to condemn, but to bring about repentance. What we do is important to God as His followers. But how we do it is also very important to God. So this fruit is produced in the life of a believer who has learned to express their strength in a controlled manner through loving service to others. Christian, exercise gentleness in your words. Exercise gentleness in your words. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We don't soften an answer by taking the truth out of it. We soften it by bringing it to a person in a way that they understand we care for their heart and that whatever correction they have is for their good. When someone is wrong, do you use your advantage, your intellectual advantage, as a weapon against them? Do you take the opportunity to degrade them or to put their foolishness on display so that all can mock? To exercise your superiority over them? Or do you choose words which bring them to the truth without obscuring the fact, the important reality, that the Lord loves them, even though they have failed, even though they were wrong? In no way is gentleness an excuse to compromise the truth. It is, however, a challenge to speak that truth in a loving and considerate way. And when we answer someone in a gentle tone, with a respectful word, we minimize the likelihood that the conversation turns into a you versus them battle. A battle where there is always one person losing and another person winning. If we truly care about our brothers and sisters, we want them to win. We want victory for them. And often that victory, the path to it, is through confrontation, but it can be done in a way that is loving and sincere and gentle. 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone 
who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And this gentleness, as we see here in 1 Peter 3.15, is not just for brothers and sisters in Christ. It's for all in the world. It is for the lost person. It is for the person who detests your Savior, who thinks he is a, a fairy tale. You are to give that person gentleness and respect as well. Christian, express your gentleness through your words. Express your gentleness as you exercise authority over other people. Every one of us has some degree of authority in this life, whether it's over your kids, whether it's over your other employees at work, whether it's over your students. Every one of us has some kind of sway, some kind of influence and power. And we are to exercise that authority in a way that is gentle and reflection of the gentleness of our Savior. First Peter 5. You might remember back when we were talking about the requirements of elders and deacons, the biblical requirements of those, those stations. And we talked about how Peter, in his letter to the churches in Asia Minor, talked to shepherds, those who would serve as elders, and he, he reminded them about how important this responsibility was over the church, that they were not to lord their authority over others, not to be domineering to their brothers and sisters, but rather to be examples to the flock. What is he telling them to do? He's telling them to exercise their authority with gentleness, to care for those that they have been called to shepherd. Power corrupts the world knows this well. Power corrupts unless you are constantly mindful that the only true power you have is the power that a loving and incorruptible God has granted to you. Be humble when God has you lead someone else. Do not use force to bully others into submission, but lead others in truth with a gentle and patient heart. Ephesians 6.4 it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the dis- discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, we see here that gentleness is in no way passive. You are, to, you are to help your children understand the truth. You are to bring them along in a greater realization of what God's will is for their lives. You're to teach them from the Word, but you're to do so in such a way that you're not constantly frustrating them. We must raise up our children in the way they should go, but it is sadly so common to see mothers and fathers who lead their kids in a way that isn't measured, that isn't metered, but is domineering and degrading to their little ones. Let our love for our kids come through, not only when they have earned that love through obedience, but when they need correction as well. If we do not, church, we run the risk of training our kids to grow up to be legalists to fall into the very false doctrines that the Galatian church was being warned against by Paul the Apostle. Bad doctrine sometimes begins in bad churches. Sometimes it begins with a bad example at home. Sometimes it begins when we don't take our first ministry to our families seriously and we don't care to be gentle with our children so they are raised in an environment where hostility is associated with power and authority. And we have a God who is so gracious and loving and kind and merciful. Let us display those traits to our kids as we raise them up in the truth. Christian, express your gentleness and your response to God's authority. Not only should we be gentle in the ways that we exercise the authority that God gives to us, but we should always keep our mind and memory on the fact that any authority you've been given is a gift from God, a stewardship that you are to take care of. And that He exercises ultimate authority over each one of us. 
So be gentle when God does what He has every right to do and He stops you in your tracks and treats you like a son or a daughter and corrects. James 1.21 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Friends, the word meekness here in the Greek is the exact same word for gentleness. That word can be translated either way. Gentle means meek at the same time. So if you're not gentle with others, the chances are you're stubborn with God as well. The spiritual fruit of gentleness should come across in the ways that we respond to God's authority over us. When He tells us no, are we able to say, so be it, Lord. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. When He says stop, are we able to say, as much as I want to keep going, you're my God. I repent. I will stop. When God says, get up and serve, when He calls us to something that is terrifying to us, that needs courage, are we willing to say, God, I'm scared, but yes, I will go. Do we respond to His authority with a gentle heart that's willing to receive the guidance that His hand so wants to give? One of the ways that we know that this idea of gentleness is not the same thing as weakness is that Jesus is our greatest example of this gentleness. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Paul had a lot of correcting to do in the church of Corinth. That was a church that often went astray. That was a church that struggled to be holy and to see the light of good doctrine. And so Paul had to, to confront them in very, very stern ways at times. But he is entreating them by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, reminding them of this great mercy that they have been shown in their salvation. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is Jesus telling us that he is gentle. The one who with a word could call out hosts of angel armies to do battle for him. And yet he has patience with us. He is long-suffering. Seventy times seven, he will re refuse to condemn us in our sin. Again and again and again. This is a God who shows that gentleness is truly godly restraint on power. Notice in this last verse in Matthew eleven twenty-nine, 29, Jesus is ultimately, ultimately describing his calling as a yoke, right? A yoke. This is an invitation to work. It is an invitation to serve the living God. But this is, if, if you love God, not the kind of work that will wear you down and burn you out. It is a labor of love. A labor that will free us from the unbearable burden of self-justification. And so in a sense, this, this passage from Matthew reminds us that, yes, God calls us to work side by side with Him. He calls us to be evangelists. He calls us to raise up our kids in the truth. He calls us to keep our covenant promises. He calls us to do the things that the Word tells us we should do. But that law is no longer the taskmaster that rules us and condemns us. That, that law now is God's wonderful light that shines goodness into our lives. And that so much as we love the Lord, this work that He has called us to should be a, a wonderful outpouring of gratitude towards Him. We obey these laws because He loved us to salvation first, not so that He might one day love us and approve of us and give us salvation. So fruit number eight is gentleness. 
Root number nine is self-control. Enkrotea. Enkrotea. Self-control is a term that is actually one term of two combined terms put together. It's a contraction in the Greek language. So kratos is a word that means power, means dominion and rule. And the word en, the prefix en, means within. It is a preposition of position. And so this is strength within, dominion within. You see how this word is, is created? It is control within the self. And kratos, in kratea, refers to this power within, a power that makes it possible to have mastery over our personal desires. Remember, this power is not referring to something that is essentially human. Human beings are not born with a power that controls the self well. We are born with what we call the sin nature. This tendency, this compulsion to fight against God's authority. That's how every human being enters into this world. Romans 1 begins with a sobering declaration. If you go back and read that letter, you'll see it. Man wanted to be wise in his own eyes, so he forsook the wisdom of God and he worshipped idols instead. He created gods that he could control instead of worshipping the God that rightfully controls man. In verse 24 of chapter 1 in Romans, Paul writes, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Look at that verse for a second. God didn't just turn man over to some external wicked force. He turned man over to the lusts of their own heart. Our hearts don't have the capacity to be self-controlled in such a way that godliness can be displayed in us. So this concept of self-control must be understood in the context of a true Christian life. We who trust Christ have forsaken the idea of self-control. We have been shown that ourselves betrayed us. They have led us to sin which has separated us from God. And the only solution to that is outside of ourselves. It is faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whereby our sin is atoned for on the cross. Our hardened heart is softened as we enter into a new covenant of grace and receive from God this new form of what He continues to call your self-control. This new type of self-control is the Holy Spirit that dwells within those who believe. He comes to live in our hearts, to impact our identity in a supernatural way. And this Holy Spirit, which now dwells in us, makes it possible for us to have a new kind of self-control over our impulses and our desires. And it is to this kind of special self-control that we as His church have been called. The Apostle Paul has a lot to say about freedom in his letter to the Galatians. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But be careful to see that Paul has a very specific definition of freedom. According to, to Paul, to be free is not to be out of control. It is not to be free from any kind of control whatsoever. By grace, we are no longer under the law. We have been set free from a, from a taskmaster that is too much for us to bear. But we subject ourselves to the guidelines of the law now willingly, freely, because of what we have become. We have become imitators 
of Jesus Christ. And that is precisely why in Galatians 5, we read that there is no law against the fruit of the Spirit. Against such actions, there is no law. We have been set free because we have chosen a better master, a better Lord. And in our desire to be like that Lord, we want to live these fruits of the Spirit out in our lives, through our choices, through our attitudes, through our actions. On January 7th, we studied Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. And you might remember that Paul uses an illustration that he uses in several of his letters. He said that we are to try our best to run this race unhindered. And so then we went back and we, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where Paul talks at length about this idea of self-control and how it parallels in many ways the efforts of professional athletes, those who discipline their bodies so that they might be great at their sports. And so let me read that to you again. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24 through 27, because it has so much to bear on this idea of self-control. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, perishable prize, but we an imperishable prize. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The battle against the flesh can often be helped in part by practical training. Practical training that we employ against our sin nature. This is often referred to as spiritual disciplines. And while this is not a a message about the spiritual disciplines, it is worth mentioning some of these things that God has given to us as devices, as activities, as ways that we might train our hearts to be more apt to bear these fruit of the Spirit. One of them is fasting. Fasting is self-control over our appetite. It is a way that we are called by God to seek Him out, and it's closely related to the second uh, the second spiritual discipline, which is prayer. Prayer is self-control over what we depend upon. When you stop eating for a time, or you give up an important part of your diet for a time, and you specifically seek the Lord in prayer, you desire to be with Him, you are, in a sense, freeing up your schedule so that those times of eating, those times where you sit down at a meal, can be spent instead to pray. The constant pangs of hunger in you should remind you that God is the one that gives you what you need. And as you fast, it should be turning your mind ever towards prayer as you know that He is the one that must supply to you that which you lack. Prayer is self-control over what we depend upon because when you pray, when you seek the Lord, you're reminding yourself that it isn't found in you. That the solution to whatever you're struggling through, the power you need to persevere, is not intrinsic in your humanity, but rather it is dependent on your connection to the Lord God the relationship that Christ has won for you. So prayer is a discipline that helps us to increase in self-control over what we really depend upon. When you don't pray, when you let that fall off your list because you're just too busy in the day, you will find yourself more and more depending upon material things. Putting your trust and faith in the things that you can see and taste and touch and feel and smell and hear rather than truly depending on the Lord. So when we enter into prayer, it constantly resets our thinking in an eternal way. We are putting our minds on the Lord God and we're remembering that, yeah, if I, if I win or lose, if I, if I 
persevere or if I fall flat, if I am healed or I am not healed, if I get what I want or I don't, everything I need is coming from God right now. It is from His mighty hand. So engaging in fasting, whether it's you know fasting one day a week. Some people will just one day a week, they'll fast from sunup to sundown. Uh, other people will fast for a, a short stretch of time. Some people will fast uh, certain parts of their diet. I know many people have strenuous work schedules and it's hard for you to fast. Or maybe you've got a, a health problem that prohibits you from, from neglecting food because you need your sugars to be regulated. There are many ways to fast in, in, in honor of the Lord. But you're not fasting if you're not praying. If you're not seeking the Lord, you're just you're dieting. But you're not really fasting to the Lord. So fasting and prayer are two disciplines that must be done in concert with each other. But you don't have to fast to pray. We should be a people who are constantly seeking the Lord in prayer. And if you don't have time each day to seek the Lord out, you're really missing closeness with God. If you are not insisting that your time be spent on fellowship with this God who loves you so dearly, whose love is more pure than anybody else's love, then you need to spend time seeking Him out regularly. Start to keep track of how much you pray during the day and what time. And just do a little test. See how much you pray. I guarantee you that if you do that, after a week, you're going to look back and say, it is amazing how little time I spend with my God in, in, in talking to Him and sharing my heart. And I hope that would inspire you to then be more disciplined in the way that you structure your day so that there are pockets of time when you specifically are seeking after your Lord, when you're enjoying that presence with Him, when you're calming down by simply remember that He's the one who's sovereign, not you. But make sure you make time to pray. It can be a wonderful spiritual discipline that helps us put our mind back on the Lord. Another spiritual discipline is silence. Silence. And this is not an easy one for many of us. Be still and know that I am God. If you've read that psalm before, I think it would also help if we would stop telling God how to do everything in our lives. Have you ever prayed with Him and just sat there and just let Him know your heart instead of rattling off a list of what you want and things that you want Him to do? Just sit and enjoy the Lord. Have you ever decided that you're not going to let anybody else's voice distract you from being with God today? And so you, you're determined not to have any conversation for the whole day. You're just going to spend this day in God's Word, thinking about, about the Lord. I, I bet many of us have never done that before. When's the last time you went a whole day without being able to speak? We express our opinions and our desires and our wants vocally. So it could be very helpful to us for a time to just determine not to say anything and to instead um, let the Lord lead our heart. I think silence is often done in concert really well with the next discipline, which is reading God's Word. Being diligent about seeking God's voice in His Scripture. This is the way that He talks to His people in today's church. By the Scripture, as we read what He has inspired, what He has preserved for us, we see His response to us. And so as we read the Word, we develop self-control over the data that we consume. You know, we, we are constantly bombarded, uh, bombarded by information and data in this world. And very little of it that comes from the media, that comes from the secular world, is going to have anything to do with the goodness and the truth of God. So if we want to balance that out in some regards, we need to make sure that the Word, a steady diet of what God wants for us, is put before our eyes, that we are thinking about it, that we are considering it, that we are mulling over the things that He has revealed to us. So that God will not be a stranger to our hearts, but that we will know what He wants and desires for us, that we will know the kind of God we exalt and serve. Service to others is another useful spiritual discipline. And by service to others, we develop self-control 
over our tendency to be self-absorbed. When you say, I, you know, I've got many things I can do with this little chunk of two or three hours, but instead of doing something for me, instead of relaxing and being on my phone, instead of catching up on my sports news, instead of reading that novel I've been going after, I'm going to take those two or three hours and I'm going to find a way to put them to good use so that someone else is blessed. Finding a friend who's got a need or going to sit with someone who's lonely and needs some, some help, some love from the church family. Serving others is a wonderful way. If we can regularly put ourselves in the service of our brothers and sisters and even those who don't love the Lord, it's a wonderful way to remember that Jesus Christ was himself a servant king, a king who came to care for our needs. And he was willing to put his own needs so far behind ours that he was willing to go to the cross and suffer and die and become sin so that we would know the Lord. Meditation is the next of the self-disciplines that can often really help us to grow in our, in our walk with the Lord. This, this really can't be done apart from Scripture that well. It simply means sitting and thinking at length about what you've read. Sometimes our Bible reading becomes a, a, an exercise in completion. We just want to get through from one page to the next. Meditation says, I'm going to stop and I'm going to think about what these words mean. I'm going to sit and really mull it over. I'm going to ask myself, how does, this, how does this impact my life to know this truth, to respond to this truth in a gentle way? So meditating on the Word of God, spending a half an hour on just one passage of Scripture, one thought of the Lord's, <coughs> Lord's character, on one attribute, and consider who He is and what He has done for us. It can be a wonderful impact in our life. The Sabbath is another way for us to practice spiritual discipline. This, this is more than just a day of the week. We know that in the New Testament, we're not commanded anywhere in the New Testament Scriptures to keep the Saturday as the Sabbath. But instead we see this picture of Jesus Christ being our Sabbath rest. That He is the one that gives us respite from the busyness of life. So one of the ways we can bear better fruit of the Spirit is by making sure that we're spending time resting in the Lord so we're not constantly burned out by the busyness of the schedules that we allow to invade our lives and control our time. And the final um, spiritual discipline. There are more than these, but this is just an example. This is a representative list of things that we can do that might help train our hearts towards godliness is personal scheduling. <coughs> personal scheduling gives us self-control over the way that we spend our time. This is an area that many of us have allowed to get out of control in our lives. That We feel that, that there are many things that are essential that are actually optional. And because of that, all these optionals have pushed out the essentials and kept us from doing what we really need, which is fellowship with the Lord, which is communion with His Holy Church. So these are disciplines, these are spiritual activities that we can engage in that help us in some ways to train our hearts and minds to be more willing and able to bear the fruit of the Spirit. 1 Timothy 4, 6-8 says, If you put these things before your brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith. See that? Being trained in the words of faith, and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life also, uh, this present life and also for the life to come. So consider these spiritual disciplines and think about ways that you might implement them in your life this week if the fruit that you are called to bear has been somewhat light lately. If you look out on the branches of your life and you don't see a lot of love or joy, if you're lacking in peace, 
if patience is somewhat rare, if gentleness, kindness, goodness, self-control, if these things are lacking in your life, then perhaps consider that engaging in some of these spiritual disciplines might be a helpful tool to help you train your heart toward a more godly mindset. The passage that we are studying here at the end of chapter 5 ends with one more warning. It says, Let us not be conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. And this reminds us that all the fruits of the Spirit have to do with the theme of selflessness. I think it's, it's important to recognize that self-control is the last mention. Remember we said that love being the first, perhaps because from love all the other fruits of the Spirit flow. If you're not loving, it's hard to be good and kind. It's, good to, it's hard to be gentle and patient. It's hard to be self-controlled if you're not loving. But I think having self-control being the last one shows that there is some practical help in, in scheduling your life and being diligent to pursue the Lord God in practical and attainable ways so that the Lord might constantly be honing you and shaping you to be less selfish and more prone to love the church that God has called you into. We are blessed by these fruits, and I pray that as we've been learning them, uh, that they would impact us as a church, that we might be able to see them born one to another as we interact with one another, as we seek to love the Lord by loving our neighbor better. Let's bow and have a word of prayer, and uh, we're going to sing a song together. If you can't stay for the, uh, the business meeting, then, uh, then at that point, um, after the song, you'll be dismissed to go. We're going to take just a moment to kind of situate ourselves and give the people who are up in the overflow room a chance to come down and join us. Uh, but our business meeting should probably last about 30 to 45 minutes, unless you've got lots of good questions, in which case it might go a little bit longer. Uh, but we do pray and hope that you'll stick around with us afterwards. Let's bow our heads and thank God for the word today. Lord, it's humbling to know that not one word of what was shared from the Scripture today would be able to rest in our hearts if it wasn't for the work of the Holy Spirit. We are blind without you, God. And so I pray that you would open us to the things that we have learned together, to the things that we have heard. I pray, God, for the gentleness that is needed to truly reflect the wonderful heart of Christ. We could do a lot of true and powerful things, but if we don't have love and if we're not gentle to one another then we're not really giving people a picture of what Christ is like. Father, it should be our heart's desire to be more like your Son. It should be our heart's desire to imitate Him in all things. And so I pray, God, that as we take stock of the tree that we are, Lord, that we would, we would see where the root's planted. I pray that our actions are flowing out of a great love that is treasuring up um, your truth. I pray, God, that you would help us to do more of that. Even now, as we meditate on what we've learned, that we would treasure up these truths in our heart that it would impact the way that we parent, that it would impact the way we love our spouse, that it would make a difference in the way that we treat the people at work and the way that we view our lives, not just as our free agency, God, but as our mission that you have placed us on. Thank you for loving us so well, God. If you had not interrupted, we would be on a path to destruction, but we have been made new by your son Jesus, and we are so grateful. We love you, Lord, and pray that you continue to let your presence dwell with us as we enter in a time of worshiping through planning and reflecting on what you have done. May you be glorified in every victory, God. And may we learn and grow from every failure that we have. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.